Chapter 28 of The Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 28 By Jove, if it isn't Ernest Bliss, Bliss, who was crossing the Strand on his way to the nearest Labour Bureau, glanced up quickly. The thing which he had dreaded so long had happened at last. He recognised the speaker with a sinking heart. Dick Honiton, a very smart young man about town, one of his quondam companions, a man whom everyone seemed to know, and no one knew anything about. He was dressed, as usual, in the height of fashion, and although he grasped Bliss heartily by the hand, it was obvious that he was struggling with an immense astonishment. "'My dear fellow,' he exclaimed, "'why, do you know that you are one of the mysteries of London? Where have you been to? What's happened? What's the meaning of it all?' "'I didn't know there was any mystery about it,' Bliss replied evasively. "'I thought that everyone had heard of my misfortunes.' The young man coughed. He had too much tact, however, to be at a complete loss. "'So it's true, is it, that you've lost all your tin, old chap?' he remarked compassionately. No reason why you should slip away and hide, though. I'm quite certain that some of your old pals would like to have a chance of doing something for you. Very kind, I'm sure, Bliss muttered. All the same, I've a feeling that now I have to earn my own living, I'd rather do it amongst a different class of people. It's really as bad as that, is it? Honiton observed, with polite regret. Bliss assented gloomily. Since the day when, in accordance with the terms of his unwritten wager, he had been obliged to their joint and profound regret to sever his connection with Mr. Amos Morgan, he had spent the last fortnight applying for situations an hour too late, missing others because of some trifling disqualification. He was left at that moment with less than a shilling in his pocket and the rent of his room due on the following day. His clothes, too, had suffered. He had torn his coat, and Mrs. Heath's attempts at repairing it were distinctly amateurish. There was a hole in the sole of his boot, mercifully concealed, but of which he was nonetheless acutely conscious. The bottoms of his trousers were frayed. The nap had worn off his clothes through too frequent brushings. The hand of poverty had him now closely in its grip. His face was a little pinched. For two mornings he had been obliged to deny himself the luxury of a shave. Worst of all, he had dared not go near Francis for more than a week. Not all his optimism could have explained away his almost painful condition, and the one thing he dreaded more than anything else in life was that she should lose that little flame of hope which he had striven so desperately to keep alight. So long as they did not meet, he was safe. He had her promise that she would do nothing without giving him warning. So he contented himself with sending her cheerful little notes, and explaining that he was too busy for a few days to snatch even an hour from his work. As bad as it can be, he sighed, I've had a job as a chauffeur, I'm looking for another one now. Dick Honiton was a young man who lived by his wits, 
an astute person who prided himself that he had no heart and little conscience. He immediately proceeded, however, to belie himself. "'Come and have a drink, old fellow,' he invited. Bliss looked down at his clothes. They were as neat as they could be made, but they became his present situation in life. He was painfully conscious again of that hole in the sole of his boot. Honiton thrust an understanding arm through his. "'Don't be a fool,' he said. "'We'll go across to Ransom's. You won't see a soul there, you know. And if you'll forgive my saying so, you look as if a stiff whisky and soda would do you good.' "'A very stiff one,' Bliss admitted. "'With a dry biscuit would do me a great deal of good.' They entered a popular bar in the locality, and seated themselves before a round table. Honiton at once ordered the drinks. "'You know,' he declared, "'this really takes the wind out of my sails, Bliss. Why, it's only six or eight months ago that I asked you to lend me a thousand pounds.' "'I know,' Bliss replied, and I very nearly did it.' "'As it wouldn't have made any difference to you after all,' Honiton sighed. "'I must say that I wish you had. I was rather tired of doing nothing, and it would have given me a chance to buy a share in a wine merchant's business. However, it's no good worrying about that. The boot's on the other leg now, and we must see if we can't do something for you. I haven't much oomph, as you know.' "'But I fancy that I have brains, and I've helped one or two fellows out of a hole. "'We must see about a job for you at once.' "'I say that's very kind of you,' Bliss murmured. "'Chuck it,' Honison went on. "'I'm not very flush, as I said, but you've stood me a good many dinners and other pleasant times in your life. "'And thank heaven I can still spare a fiver for a pal and never feel it,' he added his hand stealing toward his breast-pocket. "'So if you'll just say the word—' Bliss stretched out his hand and stopped him. Once more he was conscious of a strange new sensation, a queer warm feeling at his heart, a sense of a real friendship with others in the world who in the old days had seemed like puppets. Dick Honiton, too, for whom so few people had a good word— what an amazing world it was, after all. "'It's awfully kind of you, Honiton, old chap,' he said. "'I know your address, and if I come really dead up against it, I'll remind you of this. But I'm not quite on my uppers yet, and I'm bound to get a job in a few days.' Honiton withdrew his hand a little reluctantly, but not without some indications of relief. "'Well, then,' he continued, we must see what we can do about that job. Seems to me that you're not looking at this matter in the proper light, Bliss. There are heaps of ways a fellow who has crowds of pals like you had could make a bit without taking to menial work. I don't call driving a car menial work, Bliss objected. Honiton shrugged his shoulders. Well, he remarked doubtfully, that's how you like to look at it. It's honest work, Bliss persisted, and I used to drive a car often enough for pleasure. Why shouldn't I do it for a salary, now that I've got to earn my living some way or other? 
Mr. Honiton flicked a speck of dust from his patent shoes. Well, one thing against it, he pointed out, is that you've got to have a master. Can't be very pleasant for you. Now, I don't see why you can't pick up a bit and keep independent. There's a chap I know in the city. He's a Jew, but an awfully good sort, who buys cigarettes and wine and cigars. He won't touch anything that isn't good stuff, and he gets them cheap. He's always willing to allow a big commission to anyone who has a clientele and can sell them for him. Those large cabanas I sold you, Bliss, two hundred bob a box you gave for them, and real toppers they were, came from him. You see, I'm not ashamed of earning a bit for myself that way, if I can. It's awfully kind of you. Bliss said hesitatingly. I'm not sure, though, whether I should care to show myself amongst my old pals. Oh, that's all bally nonsense, Mr. Honiton declared. If you won't have the loan I spoke of, I'll see to rigging you out. What's the good of having had friends and having done them all jolly well when you had the ready, if you don't make a bit of use of them now you're up a tree? Bliss shook his head. I'd rather emigrate. Honiton passed his cigarette case to his companion, lit one himself, and slipped the remainder of its contents into the former's pockets. "'I'd like your opinion of those,' he explained hurriedly. "'You can't tell what they're like from one. Now, here's another idea. If you don't fancy you've got the gift for selling, what about keeping your eyes open for some of these young fellows about town with more oomph than they can do with?' and bringing them into little Jacobs for a quiet flutter now and then. Shemmy, you know, on the QT. It's worth a fiver or even a tenner any night. So if you can get hold of the right sort, and Jacobs will initial your restaurant bills at two or three places in town. Bliss shook his head more firmly than ever. I couldn't do it, he insisted frankly. Don't you bother about me, Honiton. I'll have to muddle through on my own. Honiton finished his drink and sighed. "'Well,' he observed, "'you don't seem an easy chap to help.' "'I am not,' Bliss confessed. "'Never mind. If I really get on the beach, I shall drop you a line. It's done me good to have met you this morning, and to have known that you weren't ashamed to stand me a drink, and you may be sure that I shall enjoy the cigarettes. By the by, I suppose you've missed your chance at that partnership.' It's still open, Honiton replied, a little wistfully. But there's no chance of my touching the oof. So long, Bliss. You're a queer fish, but the fiver will be there for you any time you like to send for it. I shan't forget, Bliss assured him heartily. Bliss made his way down the strand to Charing Cross Station and entered a telephone box. He parted with the tuppence with a sigh and rang up his lawyer. In a few minutes Mr. Crawley himself came to the telephone. "'Is that you, Crawley?' "'That's Mr. Bliss's voice,' the lawyer exclaimed excitedly. "'For heaven's sake!' "'Dry up,' Bliss interrupted. "'Just listen to me for a moment. I've got some instructions for you. There's a man named Honiton, Dick Honiton, rooms 110 German Street. You're to write him a line today and say that a client who desires to be nameless 
is prepared to advance him a thousand pounds for five years, free of interest, if he can use the money profitably. You understand? Well, certainly, Mr. Bliss, we'll attend to the matter this morning, and now with regard to a... Uh... Goodbye, Bliss said pleasantly, and rang off. The Labour Bureau seemed more hopeless than usual. Inquiries at the more august establishment where Bliss had paid his half-guinea were fruitless. He went back to his lodgings, tired out, and for the first time omitted to pay Mrs. Heath a weekly bill. He threw himself upon the bed for a few hours, and then, some time before dawn, rose again and made his way to Covent Garden. He was stiff and tired, and a little sick. Nevertheless, he made his way doggedly enough amongst the market carts, looking out always for a job at loading or unloading. At last it seemed to him that his chance had come. A dray, piled up with flowers and vegetables, was just about to start when the driver, who had been sitting for some minutes with the reins in his hands, beckoned to him. "'Want a job as an unloader?' he inquired. "'I'm out Ballam and Streatham way. It's worth half a crown.' "'I am on,' Bliss replied readily. "'Shall I climb up behind?' The former was on the point of assenting when two unsavoury-looking men emerged from a public house a few yards away. One of them, red-faced, truculent, the very type of the loafing bully, shook his fist at the driver. "'Now you!' he shouted. "'Chuck that! My pal Tim's coming along with you!' "'All very well,' the carter grumbled. "'But I've just engaged another chap. I've waited for your friend Tim long enough.' "'My friend Tim,' the other replied, "'is going to have that job, or I'll make mincemeat out of you both.' The driver pointed with his whip to the broken-down, bleary-eyed loafer who was standing on one side with his hands in his pockets, listening to the conversation. "'Is that your pal?' he asked. "'It is,' the red-faced man assented. "'And if anyone's anything to say against him, they better not say it in my presence, that's all. Up you gets on the wagon, Tim.' "'I beg your pardon,' Bliss intervened. I'm engaged for this job. The red-faced man, his mouth open with a surprise, which amounted to stupefaction, turned around. It took him a moment or two to grasp the situation. As soon as he did, however, he pulled off his coat with an angry roar and threw it towards his friend. Now then, he wound up after a stream of lurid abuse, will you hook it, or will you take a hiding? I don't want to fight, Bliss replied, but this is my job, and unless I'm told to go by the man who engaged me, I shall stick to it. The greengrocer maintained a discreet silence. The red-faced man came on. He aimed a blow at Bliss which would have killed him if the latter had not ducked. Then he overbalanced himself, recovered, and fetched Bliss a blow on the chest which nearly carried him off his feet. Bliss, who had very little idea of how to use his fists, struck out blindly, and by chance caught the other man on the cheek. The greengrocer looked around. Oh, steady, young'un, he counselled. That's Butcher Bill you're up against. He'll kill you if you don't mind. Perhaps you'd better shear off. I shan't, Bliss declared doggedly. You offered me the job, 
and I want it. It's only half a crown, Driver reminded him, and you'll get your head broken, and mine too, perhaps. Who's going to break it? Bliss asked. Well, I will show you, the man called Butcher Bill roared. He advanced more cautiously this time, but with all manner of evil things shining out of his bleary eyes. Bliss clenched his teeth and his fists. A sudden blind rage had seized him. The job was his. No one had any right to interfere, more especially on behalf of such a loafing vagabond. By good luck he escaped his opponent's onslaught. By good luck again, although he struck his assailant but a feeble blow, the latter slipped on a piece of orange peel and fell into the gutter. Bliss, whose head was reeling, sprang at once onto the back of the cart. "'Drive off!' he begged the man. "'It'll take him a minute to get up.' They drove off, and, for various reasons, Butcher Bill declined to leave his resting place. Bliss worked unloading vegetables at different fruiterers' shops until he was almost dead with fatigue. When the wagon was empty, it was nine o'clock in the morning, and he was out at Streatham. "'Drive your back, if you like,' the carter suggested. Bliss nodded and threw himself down on the dray, with his hand on a pile of empty sacks. He slept till they reached once more the neighbourhood of Covent Garden. "'You look about done,' the carter remarked, as they pulled up outside a public house. "'I'll stand you a pint.' Bliss, following his companion inside, was suddenly giddy. There was some hot coffee being served, which he drank almost feverishly. Soon his blood began to circulate once more. He bade his friend good morning. "'Give you a job any time I drop acres on you,' the latter promised, as he handed him the half-crown. "'If you'll take my advice, you'll keep nut of Bill Butcher's way, though. He was three parts drunk this morning, but he can use his fists above a bit, and he's a fair brute. He'd kill a man as soon as look at him. I haven't seen anyone stand up to him for Lord's knows how long, and you'd have been done in all right if you hadn't been a bit dodgy on your feet. Bliss started wearily back towards his lodgings. A grey mist had fallen like a shroud upon the London streets, a mist which was turning all the time to moisture, wetting his clothes, chilling the life out of him. He walked slowly and with heavy footsteps. He took no interest in the passers-by. Yet, as he crossed one gloomy square, the houses of which seemed to frown down upon him like barracks, he was conscious of a girl who appeared suddenly upon the pavement only a few yards before him. She glanced back at the house from which she had issued, and her expression suddenly aroused his interest. She was terrified. She had the look of one who had escaped from prison, and who is yet in dire fear of recapture. Then she turned her head toward Bliss, and approached him swiftly. Her eyes shone with eager hope. She accosted him even when he was a few yards away. "'I don't know who you are,' she exclaimed. "'But help me, please. I have escaped from that house. Don't ask me anything about it. Give me the money for a taxicab quickly. I must get away.' She hailed a passing cab, and as it drew up at the curbstone, she looked once more appealingly at Bliss, her hand outstretched, her white face still tremulous with terror. Bliss felt the half-crown in his waistcoat pocket. 
You will never regret it in all your life, she continued quickly. Tell me your name. Tell me when to send it to. Just half a crown, no more. Oh, quickly, quickly, please, someone will come out. Bliss's fingers were slowly withdrawn from his waistcoat pocket. She snatched at the half crown and jumped into the taxi cab. The vehicle vanished in the mist. Bliss stood for a moment looking after it. Then he looked up at the house, frowning. Almost as he did so, the front door was opened. A man in a light tweed suit with a bunch of violets in his buttonhole came out, humming a tune. He looked up and down the street. When he saw Bliss, he too approached him. "'Excuse me,' he said pleasantly. "'Have you seen a young lady?' "'I have,' Bliss admitted. "'Can you tell me which way she has gone?' "'I can tell you nothing about her,' Bliss replied grimly. The man stared at him for a moment. His face suddenly lost its good-humoured expression. "'I say,' he exclaimed, "'you don't mean to tell me you've given her half a crown?' Bliss was startled. The mention of the precise sum puzzled him. "'If you want to know,' he said slowly, "'I have lent the lady half a crown to get away from the house which you have just left, and from what she told me I am half inclined to go in and make some inquiries.' The man took the cigarette from his mouth, leaned against the railings, and laughed until the tears came into his eyes. Bliss looked at him in astonishment. "'I've lost,' he remarked resignedly. "'Have you many half-crowns, young man, that you can throw away so easily?' "'I have very few indeed,' Bliss replied. "'But I suppose she told you that she'd been insulted in that house and was trying to escape from someone, eh?' "'Well, she certainly left that impression,' Bliss acknowledged, with a sudden sinking of the heart. The man had ceased to laugh. He was looking now a little annoyed. "'Well, you've cost me a fiver and put me in a very awkward position,' he declared. "'That little girl's an actress. Lives in that boarding-house. She's been bothering me to get her a job for the last two months. I told her last night that she couldn't act. She bet me a five-pound note,' that she could run out of the house, borrow half a crown from the first perfect stranger she met, and get away with it. I was fool enough to take the bet. Now I've lost, and I shall have to find her a job too, confound you, sir. If your story is a true one, Bliss said, perhaps, as you know the young lady, you wouldn't mind returning my half crown. I've been working all night for it. I'll see you hanged first, the other replied irritably. You've cost me a fiver as it is. If you can't take better care of your money, you don't deserve to have any. Any person of reasonable intelligence ought to have been able to see that the whole affair was only a joke. A joke, Bliss repeated blankly, his voice trembling a little. The theatrical gentleman, however, had walked off swinging his cane. Bliss looked after him for a moment, wistfully. Then he turned up his coat collar and plunged into the mist, which was fast changing into rain. End of chapter 28